Good evening. I think there are some people out there. It's a little <laughs> bit hard to see when there's a pool of light here and this dimness with vague shapes. Anyway, I'm glad you're all here. So over the course of this retreat so far, we've mostly been focusing on the wisdom aspect of the Buddhist teachings. So we've been developing a strong foundation of sati, mindfulness, samadhi, stability of mind, so that we can see more clearly what's actually happening in the body and the heart-mind. And quite often when we really listen to what's going on, what we hear is various kinds of unsatisfactoriness, of stress, distress, suffering, or dukkha, as it's known in the context of the Buddha's teachings. And as I think most of you know, this acknowledgement by the Buddha of the truth that all of us at times do experience dukkha, this is the key understanding that's contained in the first of the four noble truths. So the first noble truth is a very simple statement. There is dukkha. And again, this term dukkha, it covers a whole range of unpleasant experiences from a kind of basic existential unsatisfactoriness or discontent through stress, distress, anguish, suffering, or as it says in the Satipatthana Sutta, grief, sorrow, lamentation and despair. So this statement in the First Noble Truth, it's deceptively simple and it's also pretty radical because just to acknowledge that yes, there is unsatisfactoriness, pain and suffering, that's deeply countercultural in a lot of societies around the world. We see collective denial of this truth. And I'm guessing all of you here at some point on this retreat have experienced some resistance to some dukkha. Is that true or am I projecting again? <laughs> it's a pretty universal response much of the time. And the Buddha recognized this when, as he said, the untrained worldling tends to react to dukkha in all kinds of unskillful ways that unfortunately only make that dukkha worse. Fortunately for us, none of us here are untrained worldlings. In fact, we have been training ourselves in developing this strong foundation of sati and samadhi precisely because when the mind is steady and seen clearly, we have the inner resources that we need to meet that dukkha without resistance, without reactivity. Having said that, for all of us, there are times on retreat and as well in our daily lives where the dukkha that's coming up is stronger than the capacity of our mindfulness to meet it. And we do get swept away into more stress, distress and suffering. And when this happens, we try not to blame or judge ourselves for it, but instead to use that experience as an opportunity to again strengthen our inner resources and to investigate, okay, what kind of practices might help 
so that I don't get quite so lost again next time. So just to acknowledge when we hear these kind of talks, there can be a tendency to fall into idealism and think, well, I should be able to just meet whatever comes up with perfect equanimity on day three of a retreat. (laughs) Maybe my first ever retreat. So even if this is your 30th retreat, we know this is not easy. And even very experienced meditators get caught in afflictive states at times. But the general arc or trajectory of the development of this practice is that those afflicted states, they start to be less intense. So the peak of them is less. They tend to disappear more quickly. They don't hang around for as long. And the gaps between the afflictive attacks start to get longer. And I'm pretty confident that's true for all of you. If you were to think back to the time before you started learning meditation, to now, you can probably recognize there are things that come up now that you can handle, that maybe five years ago, ten years ago, maybe even two years ago, you would have reacted to very differently. Even so, when what we, these so-called multiple hindrance attacks, assailers, It's very useful to have a range of different ways to work with them. And one aspect of the Buddha's teachings that I've come to really appreciate is that he did offer us such a range of approaches and methods, including a whole set of practices known as the Brahma Vihara. And I think I mentioned these just in passing on the first night of the retreat. So these four Brahma Vihara, they're beautiful qualities of heart and mind and they help protect us from any afflictive mental states from coming up in the first place but if they have come up the Brahma Vihara also help to relieve the pain of them so what are they? the first one you'll probably recognize it's kindness or metta And most people are probably familiar with at least this one because it's the one that tends to get taught the most in the insight meditation tradition. So metta, kindness is the first, then compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. I'd like to, this evening, just give a brief overview of all four of them so that we can start to explore them a little more as the retreat progresses. So at this point, if you remember back to our retreat description, we're focusing on the healing, the heart-mind aspect of the process. So just before I go into a little bit more detail about what each of these qualities are, I want to say a little bit about the term Brahma-Vihara itself. It's a difficult phrase to translate into English because the word Brahma refers to a kind of god who was worshipped in the Brahmin tradition in India back at the time of the Buddha. And we don't really have any equivalent of Brahma in our own culture. So it's sometimes translated as heaven instead. And the term Vihara means a dwelling place. So Brahma-Vihara, on one level, it literally means the dwelling place of Brahma. 
but it's more usually translated as divine abodes or sublime abidings or heavenly realms or boundless states. And I like to focus on this aspect of Vihara as being a dwelling place or a home because you could say that these four skillful states are our true home, a refuge for our hearts and minds. And when our hearts and minds are not assailed by afflictive states, this is where we naturally abide or dwell. And there's a sense of ease there, just as there is in our physical homes. When the heart-mind is resting in the Brahma-Vihara, we feel relaxed, comfortable, at ease, who we truly are. So traditionally, we begin this training with metta, because in the insight tradition, metta is the foundation that the other three qualities develop from. And metta is a Pali word that's pretty commonly translated into English as loving-kindness. But as some scholars and teachers have pointed out, this is not such an accurate or maybe helpful translation. Because in English, to some ears, loving kindness can sound maybe a little bit sentimental or wishy-washy. And the loving part of loving kindness can be confusing. Because in English, the word love has such a wide range of meanings. We talk about loving ice cream, for example, which is actually more greed than love. (laughs) And then in terms of romantic love, that type of love, it's often presented as very compulsive, obsessive, emotional, exclusive. So it's almost the opposite of what meta love is about. The meta ultimately is unconditional. It's a quality that can be perfected until we can offer it equally to all beings. So, instead of loving-kindness, some people leave out the loving part and just translate metta as simply kindness. Kindness, goodwill, benevolence, friendliness. This Pali word metta comes from the same root as the word for, for friendliness, which is my tree. So perhaps for some of you, thinking of metta as friendliness rather than loving-kindness may make it more accessible. And in fact, in some suttas, metta is defined simply as non-ill will. So hopefully that makes it even more accessible. We might not be able to imagine getting to unconditional loving-kindness but hopefully we can touch into non-ill will, at least at times. So I like to emphasize that this is a gradual training. We start where we are. And especially in the beginning, we want to start with where the metta comes most easily. And for most of us, that means keeping it simple, maybe keeping it natural. So over the last few years in my own metta practice, I've started tuning into non-human beings as an easier source of metta. So our relationship to animals, to birds, to fish, even insects, is usually less complicated than it is to other human beings. And so I've 
started this kind of fun practice that in whatever country I go to or whatever center I'm staying in, I try to tune into the wildlife around that place and to see if I can find a particular creature that's emblematic or representative of one of these Brahmavihara qualities. So just to give you some examples in this talk, mostly from previous places I've been to, but hopefully the images will resonate with you even so. And here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, of course our bird life, for some of us, can be a, a source of Brahmaviharas. So here at Temuata and at other centres, perhaps you've had the experience of walking through the bush and a fantail, a piwaka waka, suddenly starts darting around you. It's here, it's there, it's ahead, it's behind, it's alongside. <laughs> we know it's drawn to the insects that we're stirring up. It may not be offering us meta. <laughs> but still, when we see that tiny little bird with its fantail flitting playfully all around us, do you feel just a flicker of meta, of lightness, of warmth, of kindness? friendliness yes if not don't worry maybe birds aren't your thing maybe some other creature is and you may over the next few years just audition and see what <laughs> so as I said this can be a fun practice and metta is the foundation quality of kindness and it's said that when metta encounters suffering it flowers naturally as the second Brahma-vihara, which is karuna, or compassion. So compassion is the willingness to turn towards pain, stress, distress, dukkha, to meet that pain with kindness, and if or where possible, to help the suffering to release. And because of this intention or aspiration to relieve the suffering, it's not simply empathy. It's not just the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain. There's also the orientation to relieving that pain, if at all possible. Now sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? So in my understanding, metta is, is a more generalized kind of goodwill or friendliness, whereas compassion is specifically oriented towards pain and suffering. So there's a close connection between the two, but energetically they can feel just slightly different. So to get a sense of this, I'd like to use another bird image. This time from a retreat that I taught for Southern Insight at Staveley a couple of years ago. And on that particular retreat, there was a sparrow's nest up on the roof of the meditation hall. And one afternoon, somebody noticed that somehow a few baby sparrows had fallen out of their nest and they were lying on the, on the roof, very vulnerable. And so a group of meditators got together and somebody got a ladder and somebody went trying to find the nest and somebody brought some of those baby birds down and I noticed one of the meditators was holding this tiny little sparrow in her cupped hands. And you might imagine seeing that little baby bird. It was pink and featherless and almost translucent. 
was so vulnerable and helpless, but it was held in that meditator's caring hands. So as you hear that story, maybe visualize it or imagine it, did you notice any response in the heart-mind? And maybe it felt slightly different to the energetic quality of metta. So this is part of the skill training of these Brahma-Vihara, to be able to tune in and to notice how these different qualities of love affect the heart, the mind, the body. So next in the sequence of them is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy or altruistic joy or appreciative joy because traditionally the orientation is towards sharing in other people's happiness. So again, metta is the foundation and when this attitude of goodwill or friendliness turns towards what's going well, to success, to happiness, it flowers as mudita, appreciative joy. And it's the capacity to feel gladness for somebody else's happiness, success, good fortune. Now of these four Brahma-Vihara, it seems that in some ways mudita is the poor cousin and it doesn't get nearly as much attention as the others. And I wonder if that's Perhaps because, at least in dominant Western culture, the values are generally of competition and highly individualistic. And so the idea of appreciating somebody else's good fortune is countercultural; doesn't make much sense. And so for some people, mudita is the hardest of these four Brahma-Vihara. But if we persevere with it, we can find that that capacity to celebrate other people's happiness brings a lot of benefits. It, we can start to understand that, perhaps counter to what we've been taught, being preoccupied with our own happiness actually makes us less happy, not more. <coughs> so there are some lines from the Tibetan master Shanti Deva that convey this pretty clearly. He says, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. So we might recognize that all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. And as we explore mudita and continue to develop it, we might start to notice that our sense of separation and isolation and lack starts to diminish. We feel more connected to other people, (coughs) kinder and more generous. We stop taking our own problems quite so personally and recognize that all beings want to be happy just as we do. And so it gets easier to understand the truth of interconnectedness and the truth of not-self or non-self. So in this way, mudita directly supports the development of insight. And we'll probably be saying more about that later in the retreat. Okay, so to get a sense of how mudita feels energetically, 
I'll continue with the bird theme. And this time it's coming from a meditation center that I regularly teach at and actually used to manage in the Blue Mountains in Australia. So on one visit a few years ago, I was just walking down the lane outside of the meditation hall and a neighbor was standing in his garden and he invited me to come over and he wanted to show me there was a bowerbird nest in his front yard. So if you're not familiar with bowerbirds, they get their name because the male bowerbird, every season, he spends weeks constructing a bower to attract a female mate. And this bower is an actual structure, and he makes it by weaving grasses and sticks together to make a kind of a canopy or a tent. And then to make sure that the female bowerbird notices what he's done... (laughs) He lines the entrance to the bower with all kinds of blue objects. I'm not sure why it's the color blue, but I think originally he would find blue flowers, but these days he's gone modern and blue plastic (laughs) is the goal. So while I was looking at this nest, the male was darting around and just making sure I wasn't going to pinch any of his precious (laughs) blue things. And there was this amazing array of blue milk bottle caps and blue rosella feathers, and blue pens, and blue drinking straws, and blue clothes pegs. And they were all arranged into this kind of blue mandala. And I remember seeing that, and just feeling this sense of delight and appreciation of all of this bird's efforts to create something beautiful for his mate. So again, when you hear this description, you might just notice, how's the heart? Is there a response, a flicker of a response? And does it energetically feel different to metta and to compassion? So now we come to the fourth of these four, Brahmavihara, which is upeka, usually translated as equanimity. And this isn't such a common word in English anymore. In fact, I don't think I'd even heard of it before I started getting interested in these teachings. But as a very basic definition, it means balance of mind, evenness, stability, non-reactivity, composure. And it's the capacity to meet whatever we experience, pleasant or unpleasant, delightful or painful, with non-reactivity. And again, I'm making that distinction between reactivity and responsiveness. So the non-reactivity of equanimity, it's not disconnected or dull or non-responsive. It has a refined energetic quality to it. So we're just open to whatever presents itself. And we don't move into wanting or not wanting. It's a quality of deep acceptance and peace. And the Pali word upeka, it has its roots in words associated with seeing, with vision. And it literally means to look over, as in being in a position to see the bigger picture. So it directly links to clear seeing, to insight. And one way I think of this experience is Maybe like when you, if you've climbed up a mountainside and we can have that experience of slogging through the bushes, the forest, 
And at some point we finally get above the tree line and we can look out at where we've come from and see the whole countryside below and see where we've come from in a whole new context. And there's openness and spaciousness and expansiveness. We're not just stuck in a narrow viewpoint anymore. And I think of that change of perspective as being a moment of freedom, being able to see the bigger picture of equanimity. So maybe you're wondering what kind of bird represents equanimity. (laughs) Not so easy, and I had to ask a few people for suggestions. And one of the managers in the Blue Mountains mentioned that for her, owls evoke equanimity. So you could say the big eyes of the owl, they're certainly seeing a lot. And actually, the um, I understand that the owl can swivel its neck 180 degrees, so they have that capacity to see more fully than we do. And for a long time, I had a beautiful photo of a powerful owl, which is a specific owl in Australia. It was on my desktop. It was enormous eyes, and it stays very still. It doesn't move unless it absolutely has to. But when it does move, it is very effective. So when I was researching about powerful owls for this talk, I found a photo of a bird a powerful owl, and the caption said, powerful owl holding the back half of a common ring-tailed possum. (laughs) So you might not want to know what happened to the front half of the common ring-tailed possum. (laughs) But right there, there's an opportunity to practice equanimity because that owl is acting in accordance with its nature, not necessarily how we wish it to act, And perhaps we can appreciate its strength and its magnificence and at the same time respect its nature as a predator. So that's just a a brief snapshot, a brief overview of what these four Brahma-Vihara qualities are. And in the remaining days we'll touch into some of them a little more, offer some guided meditations. For our remaining time, I want to just explore how are these four qualities practiced and interrelated? Because at least in my own experience, it has felt really important to practice all four of them to get the full benefit of what they offer. And I think of them together as being like a four-ply or four-strand piece of rope. When all four strands come together, that rope has a lot more strength than just a single ply piece of rope. And together, these Brahma-Vihara, they act as very effective protections against the five hindrances that Dai shared with us the other night, and against, in fact, all types of afflictive mind states. So there's a way of expressing the interrelationship between these Brahma-Vihara that a couple of English Dharma teachers put together that I really appreciate and I like to share here. It's by Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs. And they just talk about how these four sublime abidings are interrelated. So they say metta, kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. 
It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna, compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not competitive. Sorry, it is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka, equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description we can see how each of these four qualities can be used to overcome some kind of unhelpful mind state and that each quality also helps to balance the others out. So you might have noticed too that each quality slides quite naturally into the next. But in the end, we return again to metta and the whole cycle starts again. So if the last quality, equanimity, slides into disconnection, it's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle and we work through each of these qualities over and over again, a spiraling journey around and through all four of them that ultimately creates a beautiful force field of different flavors of love. And so this theme of balance that we're emphasizing in the retreat, we also find it woven into the Brahmavihara themselves. And I want to highlight the balancing aspect of these practices, because not only are the Brahmavihara not taught nearly as much as the other insight practices, when they are taught, there tends to be a lot of emphasis on the first one, metta, kindness, and the other three are often just mentioned in passing, and so we don't receive the full benefit of what they can offer. And because metta is given the most emphasis, sometimes I meet people who think, well, that means we're supposed to just apply metta as a kind of a default response to every situation in life. But actually there are some situations where metta is not the most appropriate response. It possibly may even be harmful. So, for example, when I was um, volunteering in a, in a prison in the U.S. for a while, sometimes the men misunderstood metta to mean I'm supposed to be everybody's new best friend. But in a setting like a prison, there are definitely people that you might have inner friendliness to, but you definitely want to keep them at a certain distance. And that's true for us in life, too. Metta doesn't mean that we're cozying up to situations or people that are harmful. And sometimes people will say things like, well, I've been in a custody battle with my ex-partner for five years and I'm trying to do meta, but it's not really working. And so I'll ask, well, 
Have you tried compassion for yourself because of the pain of that situation? And very often people will just look at me in shock because it has never occurred to them that they should or could do something for themselves and not just offer metta out there. So we want to take care that we're not using or maybe misusing metta as a kind of panacea to try and get rid of or cure difficult emotions, difficult situations. And sometimes one or other of the other Brahmaviharas might actually be more skillful. So just a little bit more about compassion now and how it fits into this overall path of practice. I think most of you have heard me speak of how later on in the Buddhist tradition the practice, the path, is sometimes spoken of in terms of the metaphor of the two wings to awakening. And these two wings are wisdom and compassion. And we can understand very directly from that metaphor that we need both wings to be equally well developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. So wisdom is the ability to see clearly, to develop insight, which is what we've mostly been focusing on so far. And then compassion, as I said earlier, is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and when possible, to help it to release. Now, perhaps because we're in the insight tradition, the wisdom wings generally has been given more emphasis. So in the bigger picture of our practice, it can be helpful to occasionally check how is the balance between wisdom and compassion. And in my own practice, with hindsight, I can recognize times when one of the wings got too far ahead of the other. And the gap between them, it was uncomfortable, discouraging, until I eventually realized what was happening and was able to do what was needed to come back to balance. So generally, because of the emphasis on wisdom, the tendency for many people is for the wisdom wing to get ahead of the compassion wing. And as the insights start to come into play, as I mentioned briefly was it this morning or the other day, at first the insights tend to be more psychological. So we start to recognize our own personality habits, our own deep-rooted conditioning, our own quirks and foibles, and, or as it calls them in the text, our defilements. (laughs) And it can be a little bit... Who was it, you, Dai, who quoted that Tibetan teacher? practices one insult after another. It can feel like that when we're in that phase of seeing our quirks in ultra-high definition. It can be quite demoralizing. So that's definitely a place where we might want to bring in some self-compassion. And then as the practice deepens, we move beyond or we maybe continue with psychological insights, but there start to be some of those more universal insights into the three universal characteristics. Again, I think I mentioned these briefly on opening night. So the understanding of impermanence, anicca, the understanding of, because of that impermanence, experience is unreliable, unsatisfactory, imperfect, 
dukkha. And there is no permanent, stable, fixed identity in here to whom all this is happening, not self or anatta. And again, we'll be coming back to these later in the retreat. But just to say that for some people, at first, touching into these three characteristics, it can be unsettling, maybe even painful, because we're challenged to let go of some very deeply held beliefs about who we are and how the world is. And so again, at these times, we might need to consciously shift to the compassion wing for a while to develop more resilience of heart and mind so that we can navigate these challenges with some degree of balance. So those are just a couple of ways that wisdom can get ahead of compassion. On the other hand, there can also be times when the compassion wing gets too far ahead of the wisdom. So for example, as we start to really tune in to the truth of Dukkha, that first noble truth, there is unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. We can start to feel our own and others' pain so intensely that at times we feel overwhelmed. And maybe even more so these days because of modern media. We don't have to look very far to find dukkha. It is being beamed into our homes 24 hours a day. All the misery of the world all the misery of the climate crisis and everything that we know is going on out there coming into our homes and that's on top of our individual dukkha, our families, our communities. So it's not surprising that at times we might fall into grief and despair. So at these times we might need to connect to the wisdom wing again to understand that everything is constantly changing. Even dukkha comes and goes, and none of it's personal. Then it becomes possible again to taste moments of freedom, even in the midst of intense difficulty. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings of wisdom and compassion and learning how to balance them is the art of this practice. So when stress, distress, dukkha, painful emotions of any kind come up, the invitation is to turn towards them with kindness, with care, with acceptance, maybe even with appreciation, because the pain gives us something to strengthen our inner resources with. And in that process, our capacity to be with dukkha, with life's difficulties, grows. And the more clearly we see that those difficulties are impermanent and impersonal, the less personally we take them, the quickly those difficulties release. And then there's almost literally more room in the heart and mind for skillful states to grow, including compassion. So as I mentioned earlier, cultivating the Brahma-Vihara is a powerful protection for our hearts and minds. It makes us more resilient, less vulnerable to those visiting afflictive states. We have much more capacity to see clearly. And so as the practice progresses, 
wisdom and compassion, compassion become inseparable. And our capacity to act for the welfare of others as well as ourselves grows exponentially. So this is the arc of where all of this is heading. And may our efforts here on this retreat to strengthen both of these wings of wisdom and compassion help us to live our lives so that they're a contribution to the welfare, to the happiness, and to the freedom of all beings everywhere. So thank you for your attention. Yes, just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.